0: Also, if you're new, you don't know that we are wrapping up a series called By Faith. For the last few weeks, we've been going through Hebrews chapter 11, going verse by verse, section by section through Hebrews 11, looking at what's known as the Hall of Faith and these Heroes of Faith. And so today, we're wrapping up the last part of that chapter. And so we're going to be looking at Hebrews 11 today. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. It'll also be on the screen behind me. One of the things that we do at Trivilege Village for the reading of God's word is we stand out of reverence for it. So would you guys stand with me as we read from the word of God today? And if you're at Hebrews 11, say amen. 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 Awesome. I'm gonna take that as a general yes. Okay, so Hebrews 11, starting in verse 32, it says this. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose wickedness was turned into strength, or weakness was turned into strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and floggings, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning and were sought in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what was promised. Since God had planned something better for us, So only together with us would they be made perfect. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for your word and these tremendous heroes of faith. Lord, these tremendous acts and displays of faithfulness. And Lord, I, I pray as we study and we, we talk about this final section of this chapter, as we've had a, a really wonderful time looking at Hebrews 11 and seeing your faithfulness throughout history and also in our lives, Lord, I pray that you'd be with us this morning. I pray that it would be your word spoken through me. Lord, I pray that you would remove me and that you would remove any pride or any doubt or anything that would cause me to make much of myself and less of you. Lord, that you would speak because if it's not you speaking, then this is worthless. Lord, we pray in faith that you would act, that you would move, that you would challenge and convict. Lord, that you would draw us to yourself and show us your goodness, your faithfulness and your love. I pray that you'd be with us this morning. I pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So as we we look at this passage in Hebrews 11, this long list of heroes of faith, um, we see a few things that are happening. One is that, the writer of Hebrews is similar to a lot of pastors, which I find comfort in, and that they got to a point and realized that they're running out of time, and so they just need to kind of say everything at once. Will never has that problem, but I do. And so that's, that's just something that, that I have to live with. But we see that he's coming to this point, he's gone through, and we've seen all these different heroes of faith, these men and women who have ex- displayed tremendous faithfulness. And now we get to this like, compact list uh, of people and experiences of faith. And what we see in that is that these are actually very specific moments and memories that the Jewish people would actually readily know when they hear them or when they, when they read about them. So the author knows exactly who his audience is. And so this would turn to mind the specific moments, the vivid thoughts of what happened. So it's not like they're left with, oh, that, that's wild. Oh, I didn't know that happened. Um, no, they knew exactly what's happening. So we're going to unpack that together. We're going to be here for the next three hours. I hope you're going to strap in. We'll spend about 10 minutes per person. Um, no, it'll be good. We're going to go briefly over all of them and look at these tremendous acts of faith. But the main thing, if there's nothing that you walk away with today other than this, focus here. This is what I want us to, to walk away with. Please listen to the rest too, but this is it. We are called to live by faith. Let's say it again. We are called to live by faith. And now there is a difference between having faith and living by faith. Now, Will might come to my house, I'm actually flipping this the way I talked it last time because it makes more sense this way, but Will might come to my house and say, hey, Chad, do you have faith? I'm like, yeah, hold on, I, let me go get it real quick, you know, and then I'd be like, here you go, and I have a surplus. I keep it for when I need it. It's my break glass in case of emergency. It's, it's my, I have this when times get hard and when things are difficult. All right? we, we all have faith, but it's very different to have faith than it is to live by faith, And so we're going to look at what it means to live by faith through the examples that we see through the last part of this chapter of Hebrews. So we're going to look at what it looks like to live by faith through the example of profound faith, if you guys would put the points up, And then we're going to also look at what it looks like by the example of persecuted faith. And then lastly, we're going to look at perfected faith. So we're going to look at what it means to live by faith through these these tremendous stories of profound faith, these dramatic examples of persecuted faith and this wondrous account of perfected faith, okay? So let's dive back in. So we see in Hebrews 11, starting verse 32, what more shall I say? He's already said it all. (laughs) I do not have time to tell you about the stories of Gideon and Barak, Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets, Who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. And we're going to pause there. So like I said earlier, the writer of Hebrews knew his audience and they knew exactly what he was talking about. But we, we might not be as acquainted with these stories in scripture. So we're going to walk through and look at the specific moments of faith for each of these accounts. So starting with the first one, we see Gideon. Gideon was a judge in Israel. What's interesting about, about Gideon is that he was from the least family and the smallest tribe in the entire nation of Israel. He came from the tribe of Benjamin, from the least family in the tribe, and yet he was the judge for Israel. And when the Lord came to him, he actually called him to go to battle against the Midianites. Last service, I said this Moabites, but whatever, we'll get there. The Midianites. And so he, he, sent, he was called to, to lead the nation of Israel and to battle against the Midianites. And so Gideon, having 32,000 soldiers, which sounds awesome, right, um, is up against a significantly larger ba- uh, army of the Midianites, but This is where things get interesting Gideon is not only told to go and lead the nation of Israel into battle, but he said, In order that you might not think that this victory came from you, your army is too big. It's like, what? Like, the Midianites are almost four times the size of the Israelite army at this point. So it's like, your army is too big? Mm, I beg to differ, God. But he ends up uh, dwindling down the army from 32,000 to 10,000. So now we're roughly at around 12 times the size. Is what they're going against. So that, and that already seems like, wow, okay. Whew. God says, no, 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 too big. People still might think that this came about by human effort, not by God. So he has them go down to 300 men. And not Spartans 300. It's not like Gerard Butler. Like this isn't like, this isn't like the elite of the elite. These are actually people who we see are less skilled in war. These aren't the, the best warriors. So he has, three, he has a ragtag group of 300 men going up what, what some scholars say was up, upwards of 120,000 people. <sighs> Pass, right? Um, but that's what we see happens. And not only that, not only do, do we see that Gideon leads an army of 300 men, they're not armed with any weapons. These 300 men are only armed with a trumpet a torch, and a clay pot. That's it. And we see that God brings victory through the armies of Midian. He brings victory to the army of the Lord in conquering Midian through Gideon, which is kind of fun. I didn't realize that rhymed, but it works out. So Midian and Gideon, it's fun to say. But we see that God brought, it was this tremendous act of faith where Gideon led 300 men into battle and God came and gave a significant victory, an unimaginable victory. An almost unquantifiable victory. Statistically speaking, they should have been completely destroyed within the first minutes of battle. Not armed with weapons and only 300 people. But then the second person we see is Barak. Now Barak was a general in the army of Israel. Barak was uh, a general during a time when Deborah was the judge. And Barak was told to go to battle against the Canaanites. And so the Canaanites had a superior military. They had superior chariots and weapons. But the interesting thing about Barak is that Barak was called to go against the nation of of Canaan and fight against the Canaanites with only using two of the tribes of Israel. So he couldn't even use all of the soldiers. He could only use two of the tribes. And the second thing is that I was told that the, the victory would not be accredited to him. So no matter what happened, he wouldn't get any credit as a general of the army for the victory. And then lastly, to ensure that he couldn't take any credit and that couldn't, he couldn't say, I did this, I'm a great general, look at what happened. A woman was going to kill the king, which in that day and age was just unheard of. And so we see that Barak actually went into battle. And not only did he go into battle, he actually begged the judge Deborah to go with him. You are the woman of God, I need you with me. And so we see this tremendous act of faithfulness of Barak to lead a smaller group, uh, a smaller army, into to fight the Canaanites who had a superior, who had superior weapon and force, um, and to not receive any of the credit for the victory, but give it all to the Lord. Then we move from there, and we see Samson. Now, Samson's one that a lot of us know. If you grew up in church, you know he's a long-haired, super-strong Hulk dude, um, and so we see that Samson, Samson was given a mission to combat the Philistines. So in his life, he was, he was meant, his purpose in life was, was given by God to go and confront the Philistines. And we see these wild stories of, of Samson actually defeating like small armies, battalions of Philistines by himself. With his own hands, with like a, a donkey's jawbone. And he's, he's also a incredibly violent man. We'll get to that later. But, but we see that, that Samson is this tremendously strong person given by the Spirit of God, the supernatural strength. But the moment of faith is actually when he finally goes to obey what the Lord commanded. And he gives supernatural strength to bring down this Philistine house and destroy the leadership of, Philist- of the Philistines. And so we see this tremendous act of faith where Samson was given supernatural strength. And then we see Jephthah. Jephthah was also a judge. And Jephthah, what's interesting about him is he was a mountain man. He lived out in the mountains, just like Robbie Saganik. And um, <laughs> just kidding, but we're going to go travel together. It's going to be great. But, um, but he was a mountain man and he was called out by the Israelites to have them protect them from the Ammonites. Saying the Ammonites are going to destroy us. We need a leader. Jephthah, would you come and bring victory for Israel? And he goes in faith and leads the nation of Israel to victory over the Ammonites. Then we get to David. Now David, a lot of us know about David. David went up against Goliath when none of the nation or none of the armies of Israel would fight him. David also refused to kill Saul, even though Saul was king and trying to murder him. He refused to harm the Lord's Lord's anointed. And then David also ruled the nation of Israel faithfully, dependent on God to move and act throughout his leadership. And lastly, the last person we see is Samuel. Now Samuel was different because Samuel wasn't a warrior. Samuel didn't go into battle. Samuel's enemies were his own people. Samuel was called to be a prophet, the final judge and first prophet, to proclaim uh, to the nation of Israel to repent and to trust God as king. But because they weren't willing to do that, he also establishes the first monarchy in in Israel. And so we see that Samuel actually lives faithfully day after day after day, constantly being rejected by his own people for being a, a prophet to the nation of Israel. But then we see all these other stories too, these nameless people, where we see that David and Solomon, through faith, conquered kingdoms and administered justice and gained what was promised. We see the story of Daniel, who his faithfulness in not refusing, or in refusing to, to stop praying to God was thrown into a den of lions and the Lord shut the mouths of lions. We see that "His friends, Shad, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into a fiery furnace because they refused to bow down to this image of a foreign God. And they said, they even confronted the king on it and said, even if God doesn't bring deliverance for us, we still won't bow. We trust that the Lord is God. And they were thrown into the fiery furnace and brought out unscathed. We see that Jeremiah and Elijah escaped the edge of the sword. We see that Samson, whose weakness was turned into strength. We see that Gideon, Barak, and Jephthah, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. And we see that through Elijah and Elisha, both at different points in time, women received back their children who had died. These are remarkable, remarkable acts and feats of faith. This is just unbelievable. And a lot of times we can look at this and and we try to put ourselves in the story, right? What does this mean for us? What does this mean for me today and in my life? And we can say, well, who are your Goliaths? Who are the giants in your life? What is your lion's den? What is the fiery furnace that you are facing, right? But that actually does a disservice to what happens here in scripture because these acts of faith are unique because what we see is that not everyone faced the same circumstances just like we don't face the same circumstances today. We may not face a fiery furnace, maybe we will. We may not face a literal giant, maybe we will. I don't know. But the thing is, is that in that moment, God is calling us to an act of faithfulness that is different because of our context. So for us to say, just look for the giants in your life, actually does a disservice to the faithfulness that both David and the greater faithfulness that God showed to him. And so we can, we can see this. So then the real question is, then what is, how does this translate today? Like if we aren't facing the giants, if we aren't thrown into a fiery furnace, if we aren't running away from a, a ruler who wants to kill us, you know, if, if you don't go to work tomorrow, wondering if your boss is going to hurl a spear at you, um, then what does that mean for us today? How do do we deal with this passage? And I think one of the things that that gets in the way of this is that we see ourselves as lesser. We see ourselves as inferior. These were heroes, almost superheroes of faith, right? These are people who did crazy things. I'm just me. Like, I like vanilla ice cream. I actually like mint chocolate chip, but whatever, you know? It's like we're just plain, like, It's not like I'm facing these crazy things. But we forget that these are actually ordinary people too. These are ordinary men and women who stepped out in extraordinary faith to an extraordinary God. And extraordinary things happened in their life. And if you don't believe me, let's look at some of these people and I'll make you feel better about your life. Let's start with Samson. Samson, <laughs> Samson was someone that you never want your kids to grow up or like being friends with or becoming like. Samson was incredibly immoral. He was a violent person. Um, he was also pretty dense. Um, he wasn't the smartest uh, tool in the shed. And so we see that, we see that Samson uh, throughout the story of his life actually isn't really credited with faithfulness, but rebellion. And we see that through his life, he actually promotes his own pride. He's a narcissist. He's consumed with himself, and he thinks that the world is meant to gratify his own pleasures, but in a singular moment of faith, he's accredited as faithful. Look at um, Gideon. Gideon was a coward. He was someone who was actually hiding when we see him in the story. He was hiding because he was afraid what would happen to him. He was small. So Gideon is this guy who's afraid of the world. What's going to happen? Am I going to make it tomorrow? We see that Elijah actually had depression and at a point in his life actually asked the Lord to take his life because he just couldn't take it anymore. We see that David had a problem with women. He was filled with lust and had many wives and concubines and even committed an affair that resulted in him also coordinating a murder to cover it up. And his son Solomon wasn't any better this is a man who literally went through and sought out any pleasure he could possibly find in the world. This guy had over 700 wives. I don't even know how that's possible. Like, and then kind of keep, like, what? These aren't people that we necessarily look at and go, I want to be like him. I want to be like that guy. I hope my kid grows up to be like Samson. <laughs> Ooh, we should talk. Um, these are ordinary people who God did extraordinary things through. And we are called to live by faith just like they were. And then we trust that God will do extraordinary things through our humble acts of faith. Amen. But there's a barrier that I believe that, there's a few barriers that stand between us and actually living a life of faith. We said that these, these men and women lived lives of faith, but there's some barriers that prevent us from having uh, an active, uh, a proactive, a static life of faith. And it causes us to have a stagnant life uh, uh, docile faith, a faith that's just dormant. And one of those barriers is we have pride. Last week, Pastor Will talked about, um, quoting C.S. Lewis, how there's two different sides of the same coin of pride. There's the pride of elevation and the pride of deprecation, right? So let's first look at the pride of elevation. What stands in the way of us having active faith is our own ego. We think that You know, life is just, it really is about my satisfaction and it's about me. And so, like, I'm not willing to sacrifice because that's hard. Uh, No, no, no. You're the one who needs to go do that, not me. Or I'm too good for this. I'm sorry, I can't lower myself to the standard of whatever you're doing. I can't be as generous. Or maybe it's in generosity. It's like, well... I should really decide if it's really going to a good cause. Like, I'm the bastion of what is good and right and moral, right? And so we look at ourselves as prideful and elevate ourselves above God himself. And so it inhibits our ability to be faithful because we're too consumed with ourselves. The flip side of that, the side that I tend to fall in, is the deprecating side. The side that thinks too lowly of ourselves. I, there's no way I could, I could be a man of faith. Like... I don't know, I don't have talents, gifts. You don't know the sin that I've done. You don't know my backstory. If you knew the pain that has been caused in my life, you would see that, no, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm too far gone. I'm a lost cause. And we see ourselves as lower and lesser than. God couldn't possibly use me. One says God would be privileged to have me. The other says God couldn't use me but both are consumed with self. Both are looking at ourselves and saying that we determine what God can and cannot do. Pride inhibits us from having active, vibrant, living faith. The second barrier is doubt. We doubt that God will actually fulfill what he says he's going to do. We can doubt that God's promises aren't for us. What if God doesn't meet us there? We doubt that God is good. We doubt that God is loving. We doubt that God is present. If I step out in faith, how am I going to know if God's actually going to be there when I get there? If I step out and obey what God has for me, how can I have any guarantee that it's actually going to go well for me? These people had awesome things happen to them, but can I get a little guarantee of that? Can you give me a little foreshadowing of that? Can you tell me that everything's going to be okay? We don't live actively in faith because we have doubt. We doubt God for who he is, for what he said he will do, and for the promises that he's given us. But we see that these people weren't absent of pride or doubt. Like we said, Samson was a narcissist. Elijah dealt with depression. These people, these men and women had doubts. These men and women had pride issues, both on the the elevating and the deprecating side. But it was in spite of their issues, in spite of these barriers, that they were willing to step on faith and trust that God was greater than their doubt, greater than their pride, greater than their circumstances. This is good news for us because in the economy of grace, God uses the weak. In the economy of grace, God uses the rejected and the outcast. He uses what's considered lowly to shame the strong. He gives strength to the weak. He gives power to those who are powerless. We see this over and over through every example that in the economy of grace, God uses those who the world would reject. This is good news for me because I am a sinful, lame human being. This is good news for you because you're just like me. So now that we've looked at this profound faith and the profound faithfulness of God, let's look at the second part, the persecution, the persecuted faith. The second part, as we look at, we're gonna, it's going to be in, in uh, 35 verse B, and it says, there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and floggings, even chains and imprisonment, they were put to death by stoning and were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planted, planned something better for us, so only together with us would they be made perfect." When we, when we think of prosperity gospel, it would love the first part of this section, right? Look at what God's going to do in your life, child. The last time I did Southern accent, it's just all I know. <laughs> Whatever. The blessings are going to be on you. It'll be good. <laughs> like you step out in faith and it's all about you receiving. Will can't even handle it. <laughs> but, but we see that, that prosperity gospel loves the first part but it doesn't have a category for the second. Why would the author end this amazing chapter on faithfulness and end with suffering, with persecution, with death? It almost seems like a bait and switch. Bring the kids back up. Let's wave the palm branches. Like, how are we? Okay. We don't have a category for that. Because sometimes we only attribute God for his goodness and we don't attribute goodness to suffering. We only say that God is good in as much as I am blessed, not in as much as I suffer. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that faith is made perfect in weakness. Faith is made perfect in weakness. And it's those who suffer that display great faith. So let's look at these. Again, we, we see that the, the author of Hebrews knew exactly his audience and that these were vivid moments in their lives. And so when we see this, the first part says those were tortured. In the Greek, the word that it uses for torture, the, the picture that it paints is actually too graphic for me to share uh, uh, this morning because there's children present. But, um, but the idea behind it is that it was to inflict so much pain that the person was in agony until they died. That's the image that we see, that these men and women were tortured. It wasn't just that they were beaten, but that they were tormented and in agony until the very moment of their death but yet they refused to be released. So it wasn't that they were unwilling, that they suffered unwillingly, but that they were willing and glad to suffer because of the promise was greater. And so when we see this, we see a lot of the prophets actually are exemplified here. The prophets were, some were killed by the sword. Um, We see that they were destitute, persecuted, mistreated. Elijah and Lisha are known as wearing sheepskin and goatskins because they couldn't afford actual clothing They had to hide in caves and mountains and holes in the ground. They were jeered and imprisoned. Jeered is another word of mocked, ridiculed. They were rejected. We know that Jeremiah was stoned. Elijah was sought in two because the king just got sick of hearing him say, repent and turn to the Lord. I get it. Kill him. But there's one story that I don't think many of us know. And that's actually a lot of commentators have agreed that the first part when it says that they were tortured, refusing to be released, so that they might gain a better resurrection. It's actually pointing to this point that took place between the Old and New Testament. It was, it was during the Maccabean revolt. And so what was happening in this point in time is that the Greek empire was ruling, and Antiochus Epiphanes IV was king, and he was wanting to convert all of the Jews to um, Hellenism. So they wanted to, he wanted them to become Greek. And so w- with that, they had to worship Zeus, and they also had to defy the Mosaic law. And so there's this picture during the Maccabean revolt that this is actually pointing to that was well-known in Jewish culture of this family of seven sons and one mom who were tortured for their faith. And what happens is Antiochus Epiphanes is actually tormenting this family and forcing them, trying to force them to defy the Mosaic law, to, to go against it and disobey it right in front of them, and then denounce the Lord as God and pronounce Zeus as good and as God. And in this, one by one, each son is brutally tortured and murdered in front of the eyes of the rest of the family. And one by one, each son pronounces a resounding declaration of faith. Each one by one says that I am trusting in a greater promise. I am trusting in a greater resurrection. In fact, one of them, they said that they were so shocked by his eagerness to suffer that they didn't think he could feel pain. He was saying, whatever you take from me in this life, the Lord will bring back in the next. Come on now. And then finally, we get to the youngest son. And the mom leans in. There's this picture of the mom leaning in and telling him, it is going to be worth it. And he says, do to me whatever you will. I will not renounce my Lord. And then the mom herself, after seeing all of her children dies, is also killed. It was horrific, violent. But we see this resounding faith, this resounding, concrete, foundational faith that despite opposition, despite torment, despite um, suffering, they were unwilling to waver. What does that look like for us today? What does that mean for us? What do we do with that? What's the handle for us? And I think a lot of times when I think of suffering, I think, yeah, I'd be willing to die for what I believe. I'd be willing to die for the Lord. Like, I believe in God. I'd be willing to die for that. And many of you might feel the same way. And in some ways, I feel like it's a disservice. Because for one, we wouldn't know that until the moment comes, right? So we could say, yeah, I'd be willing to die for the Lord. But you're not facing death right now. At least I don't know you are. And, um, but I think what's actually harder than saying I'd be willing to die for what I believe is saying I would be willing to live for what I believe. Because living for what you believe requires daily death. Living for what you believe requires daily self-denial. Saying that I am willing to die to myself to live for my Savior. I am willing to cast aside the things of this world so that I can have the better resurrection, so I can have the better life, so that I can have the eternal glory. It is much harder to live by faith So, again, what does this look like for us? Well, I think when we see this again, we talked about the difference between living by faith and and having faith. And the writer of James really illustrates this beautifully. And so I don't have it on the screen because I want you to listen. I want you to hear what the writer of James says when talking about faith. And so in James chapter 2 and verse 14, it says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds or works or action? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does absolutely nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But if someone will say to you, you have faith and I have deeds, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you mine by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe and shudder. So we see that the difference between having faith and living in faith is that even demons have faith. Think about that. Even demons believe that God is Lord and that Jesus actually came, died, and resurrected. But it doesn't mean that they're living in faith. You can believe in God and still not have an active faith. You can believe that God is real. You can believe that Jesus died. You can even sing worship songs, but not be living in faith. This is highly confrontational. This is highly convicting. Are we living in faith? These men and women who suffered and were persecuted, who died and were tormented lived in faith gladly because they saw the future blessing as worth infinitely more than anything they could achieve or receive in this world. Their faith wasn't something they had, it was something they lived. So where is our faith? What is our faith in? What prevents us from having that kind of faith? I think one of the barriers that keeps us from that is fear. We've already talked about pride. We've already talked about doubt. But fear is a significant barrier to having an active, vibrant, living faith. We're afraid about what might happen. Maybe in faith you are called to live out your faith in your work and it costs you your job. Maybe in faith you are called to give of your finances so that you don't know where your next paycheck is going to be coming from. You don't know where the money's going to go. Maybe in faith, you are called to take care of the broken, of the lonely, of the orphan, of the widow, of those who have a disability or a special need. Maybe you are called in faith to be ambassador of justice at this expense of yourself. Maybe in faith, you are called to do something that seems so ridiculous to this world, but is an act of obedient faith to the Lord. Maybe it'll cost you your job. And so the barrier of fear is what? What if I don't have a paycheck? What if I can't provide for my family? What if I can't put food on the table? What if they take my house? My car? What if I never get a place to work? What if I'm alone? What if my friends leave me? What if my family disowns me? What if I can't make it? Fear is a significant barrier to an active, living faith. But again, it's not like these men and women didn't have fear. You want to tell me that facing torture, that they didn't have fear? It was despite their fear they trusted in a living God. Despite their fear, their faith was in something greater than themselves. Despite their fear, their faith was resolute and founded and grounded upon a greater promise. That what is happening in this life is infinitely of less value than the next. Their faith was resolute. It reminds me of a quote of a missionary, Jim Elliot, who was actually martyred for his faith. But he's famous for for saying this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I'm gonna say that again. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That is what these believers held to, clung to, Leaned on. So they tied their arms around. I'm not giving up what I can't keep. I'm clinging to what I can't lose. But too often we cling to what we cannot keep, forsaking the very gifts that we shouldn't lose. Sometimes if if you're wondering where you're at in faith and, and what your faith looks like, and you can ask these questions, what does faith look like when it comes to my bank account? Does the way I spend my money reflect an active faith or a passive faith? Does the way that I live my life, the the dreams that I have, my pursuits for my family or my kids or or my own vocation, am I planning my life on my own and asking for the Lord's blessing? Or am I pursuing the Lord's will and saying, whatever you want, whatever you be done, let that be true in my life. Are Are we unwilling to give the Lord everything And so we give him nothing. Where is our faith? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So now that we've seen this profound faith, both in success and victory and in persecution, we need to look to the perfected faith. Because all of this, this entire passage, this entire book is pointing to the person of Jesus Christ. The entire thing, the by faith, this person, by faith, this action, by faith, this outcome is all pointing to the perfected faith in Jesus Christ himself. And you're wondering, where do I get that? Great question. Hebrews chapter 12, right? The very next part, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, these heroes of faith, thing is about Jesus. He is the originator. He is the source. He is the champion. He is the author. He is the perfecter of faith. Faith comes through him in perfection. It is not diluted. The word perfect is without blemish. It is a perfect, resolute, holy faith. The faith that we have comes from him because it's his faith to begin with. We can't muster up faith ourselves. It'd be a failure for me to say, go and just live in faith. Rather than what the author of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on the perfecter of faith. Consider him who's the pioneer of faith, who endured suffering for you. What's wild though is that when it says cast off, it's not just sin. The things that trap us up in this life aren't just sin. It says cast off the things that hinder you. What is hindering you from active faith? Is it your comfort? Is it safety? Is it your family? Is it your job? Is it your career? Is it your dreams? What is hindering you? The things that are good, they're not sinful, but they've become an idol. They've become paramount and God has become secondary. What are the things that are hindering you from a vibrant, active, living faith? But then secondly, the sin. We see that sin entangles us. The image here is that we are on a race, that faith is active, it is moving. But these barriers, these hindrances, these sins tie us up and leave us just laying on the ground, unable to move. Cast off these sins that so easily entangle you. Hatred, jealousy, bitterness, wrath, lust, uh, gossip. Whatever it is that's holding you back Cast it off, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of your faith. This is the part of the message where we start saying Jesus is the greater than. Um, you might know that we have do this. Jesus is greater than this person. And, and normally, uh, I would be building. I'd be showing and, and, and getting really animated and, and Will would get way more animated. But you would see that we'd be saying that Jesus is greater than so and so and such and such. And I'm going to do that. We're going to see how Jesus is greater than. But as I was writing this this week, I felt like I couldn't, I couldn't get excited in that way because I had to be humbled first. And so we see, yes, Jesus is greater. We said Jesus is greater than Gideon, providing the more miraculous victory over our sin and death. Jesus is the greater Barak who humbled himself to submit to the will of God. Jesus is the greater Samson who gave up his, who, who in strength, Um, defeats our enemy. Jesus is the greater Jephthah who accomplishes peace and safety for his people and makes a greater vow sacrificing himself. Jesus is the greater David who rules justly, who conquers the enemy and establishes peace and justice in his kingdom. Jesus is the greater Samuel who faithfully proclaimed the kingdom of God. Jesus is the greater Elijah. Jesus is the greater Elisha. He's the greater Isaac, Isaiah, Joseph, Jeremiah. Jesus is the greater faithful. Jesus has the greater victory. Jesus quenched the greater fire. Jesus shut the mouths of the lions. Jesus um, saw the the enemies um, get rooted in battle. And ultimately, we see that Jesus received back the dead. But not only that, Jesus was the greater martyr. He endured the greater suffering, the greater torment the greater shame, the greater rejection, the greater imprisonment. Jesus experienced the greater loss so that you and I would never experience it. Jesus experienced the greater death so that you and I could experience the greater promise, the greater life, the greater fulfillment, that you and I could have a greater destination. These men and women weren't commended for their faith and they didn't receive what God had promised in this life. But because of Jesus They got so much more in the next. There's a stark difference between having faith and living by faith. So what do we do now that we see what we're called to, that our eyes need to be fixed on Jesus and that we are supposed to consider him who endured such opposition? And and I'm reminded by this commentator, um, George Guthrie, if you put this quote on the screen, who says this, I just thought it was brilliant. So, How would you and I live today if we believed absolutely that God existed and loved us completely and had a destination for us that made the world pale by just one square foot of its turf? Think about that. The world is pale by one square foot of heaven. How would you and I live if we believed that God cared about our every action and every concern and wished to reward us magnanimously, I practice that, for our faith How would you and I live in the face of opposition if we believed in God, really believed as if our whole lives depended on him and his? And you say, but I do. I do believe. Absolutely. I believe with all that I am and all that I have. How would you live differently if you did not believe? Would there be much of a difference? This is a critical question. If all that I am and have and do differs little from my unbelieving neighbor, then I have embraced his world and his values, and I fool myself by saying that I'm living for another world and kingdom values. My life must be radically different and what I embrace, the values of a heavenly kingdom. When I live by faith, I then will be one of whom God can bear witness and whom bears witness to God in such a way that others will be stimulated to faith. Amen. Man. We see that we are called, (laughs) we see that we are called to have an active, living, vibrant faith. And we do so by fixing our eyes on the pioneer and perfecter of faith, who is both the source and the sustainer. We consider his suffering so that we do not lose heart. We are called to be people who live by faith. So do you have faith today or are you living by faith? Let's pray.